want to welcome you to Watershed. Uh, my name is Stephen Watson. I am an assistant pastor at Grace Bible Church in Colleen. Uh, we, we partner with Watershed. We, we love what God is doing out here at Watershed, and we, we look forward to continue partnership in the future. This morning we're going to be in the book of Romans chapter 1. Kyle started the series in Romans. He spent the last few weeks knocking chapter 1 out piece by piece. This morning we're going to look at the whole of chapter 1 in, in a summary. As you turn there, I, I really want you to think about the most beautiful place that you've ever been to. Where it, whether it be nature that's just awe-inspiring, that takes your breath away. Maybe, maybe there was something that happened while you were here. Maybe you got engaged or maybe you just had some epiphany about your faith and you really grew. But you just have this beautiful spot with a beautiful experience there. And I, and I want you to try to think about what if someone said, put that experience and put that image into one word. You can't really describe it. You can't really go into the details of it. But just take that beautiful place, that beautiful experience, and, and describe it with one word. I think what you might say is you might say, Stephen, that, is, that one word would be, would be accurate, but it would be inadequate. It would be accurate, and that, that one word might describe that place. It might describe that event. It's accurate, but man, there's just so much more that can be said about it. And I kind of feel like that is, that is what I'm going to be doing with Roman ones today. Uh, it's going to be accurate. We're going to be talking about what the Word of God says, but trying to put all of chapter one into one sermon is going to be inadequate. It's, it's really a chapter that you can spend as much time as you want to with it. So the way that we are going to approach this summary of Romans chapter one is, is by answering five different questions about this chapter. Uh, five different questions about the gospel. So these are our questions. If you're a note taker, these are your questions. I'm going to list them off fast, but once again, we, we will have them up on PowerPoint as we go. Uh, first question we're going to talk about this morning is what is the gospel? We're going to talk about and answer the question is why do we need the gospel? We're going to answer the question, what does the gospel do in our lives? Our fourth question is, how will the gospel, how is the gospel received into our life? And then finally, who is the gospel for? All of these questions are answered within this first chapter of Romans chapter 1. So before we dig into these questions and answer them, let's go ahead and take a moment and, and go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Father, as we look into Romans chapter 1, I pray, Lord, that the gospel is made clear so that it might be an encouragement to those who believe and a challenge to those who don't. Father, we pray for the churches meeting across our area today as they sing their songs, pray their prayers as a word is being taught and preached. Father, we pray for those services that your spirit might be at work there as it will be here. Father, we pray for your people, for a new life that is about to be born, for people who are suffering and struggling. Lord, we pray for them. And we pray for the mission and the work 
of this congregation, this local manifestation of Christ called Watershed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first question we want to approach today is, what is the gospel? And we see this in verses 1 through 4. In verses 1 through 4, Paul is essentially introducing himself and introducing the letter. But Paul takes something that was quite common, an introduction to a letter, and he just packs it full of meaning. So let's, let's read this introduction in verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So in this very common aspect of writing a letter, you have your introduction. Uh, Paul lists out the basic tenets of the gospel. The basic tenets of the gospel is this, is that the gospel is something that God has been working on throughout human history, and that is recorded in Scripture. And it's concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, who is declared to be God Himself. He lived His life. He died. He was buried. And He was resurrected. And Paul's very common introduction to this letter, he packs it full of meaning. And this is somewhat of, of a rabbit trail, but I, I know, and I know it's early in a sermon to be doing a rabbit trail, but it's a planned rabbit trail, all right? Is it really a rabbit trail if it's planned? Too big of a question to answer, right? Um, I think this is something that we need to be doing always, taking things that are ordinary and packing it full of meaning. That's what Paul did with his introduction hey, I'm Paul, I'm writing you this letter. But in the process of introducing this letter, he packs it full of meaning by describing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is something that we need to be doing in our lives on a daily basis. Take this, for example. Say you're a parent and you have little kids. I've, my oldest is seven. I, I've got my, my youngest is still in the womb. We're calling it caboose because we're hoping it's the last one. Uh, <laughs> But because I have young kids, one of the things that we do is every night we have our, our time before we go to bed where we read books and we sing songs. And that is something that's so common that so many families do. You might pick your favorite books off the shelf. You might sing your favorite lullabies when you put your kids to bed. But one of the things I challenge you to do is take something that is common, something that is ordinary, and fill it with meaning. Maybe instead of reading... Um, your favorite board books, you, instead you pull out your Bible or your favorite children's Bible and you read that instead of the other books. Instead of sing, singing your, your favorite lullabies, why, why not teach your kids how to sing holy, holy, holy? Take something that is common, something that is ordinary in your life and fill it full of meaning. Maybe you have a commute to work that is way too long. Maybe instead of you, t you take that common, that ordinary commute and you turn it into a time of worship, a time of devotion. We have so many tools now of podcasts and audio Bibles that are free and there for the taking on our phones. Why don't we take something that is ordinary, something that is common, and that we pack it full of meaning? That's what Paul has done for us in Romans chapter 1, 
where he took this normal, common introduction, he packed it full of meaning by describing this gospel. This gospel that Christ is the Son of God. He lived, he died, and he rose again. We see Paul, once again, using this same breakdown in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You don't have to turn that, I'll read it to you. If you're taking notes, it's a good one to go back to. This is how Paul describes the gospel and explains what the gospel is in another passage. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, this, this, this isn't his, Paul's gospel here. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with scriptures. Brothers and sisters, this is the plain and simple gospel message that God became man, he dwelt among us and lived a perfect life and that he died for our sins on the cross. But overcoming death, he was raised again on the third day Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, I want to deliver to you what was delivered to me, and this is of first importance. And my question for you this morning is, do we treat the gospel message as something as of first importance in our life? Or do we just have this nice little spot for Jesus set aside on Sunday mornings? I'll give this to you, Jesus, but no more. I remember... When I was in high school, I had a youth pastor who, who knew how to speak my language. And one day he was, he was giving this illustration. He brought out pies. I love pies. Uh, so automatically he had me. And he said, all right, let's, let's just pretend that this pie is your life. And he held it up and he had his knife. He said, let's, let's start cutting up your life and dividing your life. He said, what takes up the lion's share of your time in your life? He said, well, school takes up a large part. So he, he cut the pie properly. You don't just hack at it, you cut it in quarters, right? So he took a quarter of the pie and said, all right, well, that's your school. Well, don't forget, you sleep, right? So that's, that's, that's another quarter of your pie, eight hours if we're lucky. Um, and so that, that's another quarter. What, what else happens in your life? Well, you know, we, we really love our sports. Uh, after school, we spend hours uh, practicing our sports. We go to games, we go to tournaments, and we love sports so much we don't just play them in high school, but we spend our Sundays and our Mondays watching sports on TV. We spend our summers in summer leagues. Now, of course, we have clubs where sports never end. God help us. Um, and he said, well, let's take another portion of the pie for that. What about your family? Oh, yeah, well, they get a portion of the pie. What about your friends? Well, they, they get a portion of the pie. And by the time we got to our faith in Christ, we'll say, well, how much of the pie is left? And it's just the tiniest of slivers there for God. And he brought out the new pie that was uncut and unmarked and not divided up. And he said, this is the piece of the pie that God wants. He doesn't want a little sliver, a little sixteenth or an eighth of the pie. He wants the whole pie. He wants all of your life, not just part of it. Yes, sports and school and sleep and family and friends and hobbies 
and work and parenting, all that falls in, but it's all under the lordship and headship of Jesus. We are supposed to count the gospel of Jesus Christ as of first importance. My question for you this morning is, is what is taking up the lion's share of your life? And are you dedicating it, it to God? Are you saying, God, you have my whole life? Or are you saying, no, God, I'll, I'll give you an hour on Sunday morning, maybe a small group. This leads us to our next question of why do we need the gospel? And the gospel, plain and simple, Christ came, Christ died, Christ was risen for our sins. But why? Why do we need this gospel of Jesus Christ? And we have the answer in verses 18 through 32. Uh, we're going to read this whole section. I know it's a long section, but we believe that this is the Word of God, and the Word of God has power. And that whenever we read it, and whenever we hear it being read, that the Spirit of God is at work in us. So we're not, we're not just going to cherry pick out a verse or two here. We're going to read this whole section, verses 18 through 32. So let's, let's dig in. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worship and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. They were filled with all manner of evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, and though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Why do we need the gospel? 
Paul's description of the world in verses 18 through 32 does not just describe our day, but they describe every day since Adam and Eve took of the fruit and disobeyed God. We do not look and say, well, today is worse than 25 or 30 or 50 years ago. This is the exact same world, and humanity has been behaving the exact same way. What do we do? Why do we need the gospel? Paul lays it out fairly quickly. He says the reason we need the gospel is because our hearts are idol factories and we are idolaters. We worship false gods. We can see from all nature and creation that a God exists, how the beauty declares that there is a designer who created us, in chapter 2, verse 14, he talks about not only can we see that there's a creator from the world around us, but when we look inward into the hearts of man and see that there is a moral compass in every human being, we see that there's a God who designed us as well. From outside of us in creation to our own moral compass within us, screams that there is a God and we are not him and this God deserves our worship. God has made himself known. But what do we do? We sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we, instead of worshiping the creator of the universe, take something in God's creation, whether that be our own comfort, our own mind, whether that be uh, something else in this world, and we make it ultimate. We take something that is a gift of God and we turn it into an idol to be worshipped. Our minds are complex. They are beautiful. They have done great things over the course of human history. But to make our minds and our reason and our ability to do science ultimate in the world is to worship our minds. Is to make our minds an idol to take the things the good gifts that God has given us material things wealth and comfort and to take those things and to make them ultimate in our lives is to take gifts that God has given humanity and turn them into idols to take sex and relationships and to make them ultimate is to take part of creation turn it into an idol and to worship it, to take family, this, one, this one's mine, to take family, our children, our spouses, and to say this is what is ultimate, is to take part of creation and worshiping it. Every one of us is guilty of idolatry. And God says, in Romans chapter 1, that those who practice such things deserve to die. It is the curse that we are all under, that when we rebel against our Creator and we worship the creation rather than Creator, we deserve death. And death awaits us all. That is why we need 
the gospel. Third question is what does this gospel do? This gospel message that Christ came, that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, that he was resurrected. What does this gospel message do? We see this in verses 16 through 18. Let's read those, or uh, 16 through 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What does the gospel do in us? First and foremost, the gospel saves us. Paul said he is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for salvation. Because of our idolatry and our worship of idols, we are cursed to sin and hell. But when the gospel message breaks into our lives, we have the power of God for salvation. Theologians call what's happening here this salvation substitutional atonement. Let's break those things apart. Substitutional atonement. Substitution. Someone who stands in the place of someone else. We're in a school. We're worshiping in a school. Any given weekday during the school year, you're going to have some teacher get sick. It's the nature of the jobs, the nature of the beast. You're around kids with runny noses and coughing that don't wash hands. You're going to get it. And when you're a teacher and you get sick, you call that beautiful substitute, and they come in. So I, I don't know, my, my wife sometimes like, can I get sick? If I get sick, she gets a little jealous. She's like, cough on me. Cough on me now. I want a break. Um, but a substitute is someone who stands in the place of someone else. You have baseball. If you got a, a pitcher who's a fabulous pitcher but can't hit a ball worth anything, you call someone in as a substitute to bat for him. You have somebody who can hit the ball and get on base every time, but they can't run those bases. You get someone to run for him. You have substitutes that stand in your place. The fact that the gospel has the power to save, it saves us because we get a substitute. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a perfect life sinless. And so whenever he died on the cross, he received a death that he did not deserve. He only followed and obeyed his Father. He never worshipped the creation rather than the Creator. So he did not deserve the death that he earned. So what happens is whenever the gospel breaks into our life, is the sinfulness of our own lives, the wickedness in our own hearts, the shame and the guilt that we carry and we bear and the death that awaits us is put on Christ. He becomes our substitute. But not only that, but the righteousness of Christ, the perfect life that he lived, is accredited to us. The gospel has the power to save us from our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 puts it this way so perfectly. For our sake, God, He made Him to be sin 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does the gospel do? The gospel saves us. Three other things very quickly that the gospel does for us. Not only does the gospel save us, but the gospel gives us a new identity. When Paul introduced himself, he introduced himself as someone who is in Christ. He's been called by Christ. He is a servant of Christ. He's called to be an apostle of Christ for the purposes of Christ. And one of the things that happens is whenever the gospel does its saving work in us, we get a new identity. So oftentimes our identity is found in what we do. I am a soldier. I am a pastor. Someone might say, I am a mother. I am whatever. And that becomes our identity, how we define and describe ourselves. But when the gospel breaks into our hearts and does its saving power within us, we receive a new identity. We receive the identity of Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, earlier in the passage that we just mentioned, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, him, reconciled us to himself. The identities that we have placed on our own hearts will always fail us. One of these days, these jobs that we are putting our identity in, they're going to dry up. They're going to go away. We're going to be passed over for the next guy in line. One of these days, these children that we are putting our identity in, if we are putting our identity in, they're going to disappoint us in some way, or we might crush them with our expectations. But either way, they are shaky foundations to build an, an identity upon. We need something stronger with which to define our lives and to build our lives upon. And that is what the gospel gives us. We build our lives on Christ and our identity is in Him. Not only does the gospel save us, not only does it give us an identity, but it gives us a place of belonging. We really see this in verses 8 through 15. In these verses, Paul says, you know what? I've never been to your churches in Rome. I don't, I don't know you from, from Adam. But you know what? I'm connected with you. Because a spirit that dwells in you also dwells in me. And I can't wait to come to see you. I can't wait to worship with you. One of the things that the gospel does within us is it gives us belonging. Many of us have grown up in families that are broken from divorce and betrayal and disappointment. And our homes don't feel like a home, but they feel like a, like a dungeon or a trap oftentimes. But what the gospel does in us is it gives us salvation, it gives us an identity, but it gives us a home. We who had no family before now have the family of God. And that is manifested in this church. That as you look around, whether you know the people in this room or you don't, you are connected and you belong here. 
these people in this room are your people. They are your family. Because you all have the most important thing in common, your identities in Christ Jesus. The next question that we want to answer is how is this gospel received? How is this gospel received? Paul says in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. This gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came, that he lived and died and was buried and he rose again, this gospel which promises salvation, identity, belonging, and purpose in life, this gospel, how is it received into our lives? This passage gives us the first step. The way that the gospel is received in our lives, first step is that we have to hear the gospel. We hear the gospel being preached, being proclaimed. We hear the gospel from a family member, from a co-worker. Man, if I were just to ask the question of those of you who count yourselves followers of Christ, who shared with you the gospel message, each and every one of you would have an answer. You would all have an answer. Probably most of you, I'm just guessing, let's just do it. How many of you would say mom? Anyone say, like, like this is not a rhetorical question. All right. <laughs> but if you were to say, who shared the gospel with you? Would anyone in here say, well, mom did? All right, a, a good portion of us in here. Do you realize, moms, the power that you have, the, the job that God has gifted you with, the most effective evangelists in the world are moms sharing the gospel with their kids. It's dads sharing the gospel with their kids. But for the gospel to be received, it first has to be heard. Paul says later on in Romans chapter 10, he says this, For Scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. For the gospel message to be received by somebody, it first has to be heard. And then he goes on to tell us in the same passage that after we hear the gospel, it must be believed. Paul says in Romans 1, 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the gospel to have the saving power in our lives, we must believe the gospel. This is not just an academic belief like one plus one is two and bar graphs and all this, but is much more of an issue of trust. That you hear the gospel message and you believe it and you put your trust in it. You are putting your hope in it. 
that's what it means to believe the gospel. It is a trust in the message that we have heard. Famous passage, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whomever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. My question for you today is, are you putting your trust in Jesus? Are you putting your faith in Jesus? Are you putting your hopes of this life in Jesus? so easy for us to build our dreams and our desires in this world on something else other than Christ. But to receive the gospel into our lives, to taste that salvation, to have that identity in Christ, it is a trust in the work that Christ has performed on the cross. We answer the question, what is the gospel? Why do we need the gospel? What does the gospel do and how is the gospel received? Let's end with who is the gospel for? We see this also in Romans chapter 1 when in verse 5 Paul says, Through whom, Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Later in verse 14, he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Who is the gospel for? The gospel is for the world. It's for the nations. It's one of the privileges we have of living in this part of the world. In the greater Fort Hood area, it's so neat because the church in this part of the world, we get to touch every other part of the world. I can tell you right now, so we have seven continents. One is kind of uninhabitable. Of the other six, I could tell you five of those six continents of where we have people proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ because the U.S. government moves them around all over. And wherever they go, their identity is not in the uniform they wear, but it's in the Christ that rules their hearts. And so they are able to take the gospel with them to the nations from this area. The gospel message is for everyone. And we cannot forget that we are a part of everyone. This gospel message that Christ died for sinners, that Christ died for us, is for us. This is a good news, not just to the nations, but this is good news for those of us who are in this room. I think it's interesting, back in that first passage we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's writing a church that's already established, that's already 
believing in the gospel, their church plants taken off, and what does he say to them? I want to remind you of the message that was proclaimed to me and that you have also received. This message of the gospel by which you are being saved. Not were saved, but you are being saved and in which you also stand. It's my prayer this morning that you are being saved by this gospel and that you are standing in this very gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel, for this story, for this good news of Jesus Christ, your Son. And Father, I pray that it will be received into the hearts of all the people who are within hearing, that they would believe it for the first time or that they'd be strengthened in it if they had believed it long ago. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.